0: Hey there, welcome to Sunday night school. Oh, taking a little walk on the road here. Not watching Tampa Bay Buccaneers play football. It's very interesting because, you know, Tom Brady, it's his first season on the Buccaneers. Probably one of his last seasons. I mean, it has to be one of his final seasons. And, you know, the, the way that f- football games are broadcast around the U.S. is based on how big of a market each team has. For example, no matter where you are, or at least in this area, you're pretty much going to be able to see the Pittsburgh Steelers, the Dallas Cowboys, often the New England Patriots. Many of these teams that have a long history of success and as a result have a large national market, meaning they have fans all over the country. So there's a lot of people in other parts of the country outside of their city, outside of their state, who want to see them play. And that's good, you know, if you like those teams, it's good if you want to watch those teams where, you know, I'm a a Dallas Cowboys fan, so I like that I can pretty much be guaranteed to see them most weeks, even though I'm not in Texas. But I can't stand watching the Pittsburgh Steelers, so I don't like that their games are broadcast every week in this area, because I don't want to see them, and I would rather they have another game. I would much rather see another team play, but I also understand that this is based on who has the largest national market. But I was thinking about it this morning, because, you know, Tom Brady is on the Buccaneers now, and the Buccaneers are not a team that has a significant national market i don't think they have fans outside of tampa florida they don't have a long history you know they've won a super bowl once but they don't really have a long history of success and they're not a team that you go around and see you know you don't go around seeing random people in different parts of the country wearing tampa bay merchandise which is one of the strongest indicators that a team has a a large national market because you will see people with Cowboys, Patriot, uh, Patriots, and Steelers gear. You'll see them in the gear in different parts of the country outside of where that team is located. But it just shows you the significance, you know, the fact that Tom Brady can switch to this new team and suddenly you can watch Tampa Bay games every week. And it's not that he's that exciting to watch. You know, he's certainly not at his peak. And even when he was at his peak, he's a very methodical player. It's not like you're watching an exciting display of athleticism. He's very methodical. But it's interesting that he is significant enough to make Tampa Bay games available in the Seattle area, in Washington. Pretty amazing when you think about it, that just one person, regardless of how good they are, regardless of their history of success, just the fact that one guy switching to a team can result in that team's games being broadcast nationally, like you'd see with these big market teams, like the Steelers and Cowboys. But I don't feel like watching it. You know, I don't feel like watching it, so I'm not not watching the Buccaneers game. But anyway, getting away from that, couple more things to say about the number three. <laughs> uh, you know, it's something you see in so many places, and it could really just be an endless list. But, you know, obviously there's many stories. You have the three musketeers, and even though there's a fourth musketeer, he's not included in the total. Even though there is this fourth musketeer, I don't remember the exact... I don't remember the, the logistics of how the fourth musketeer fits in... But I do know that that's always the thing. It's like, "Oh yeah, the three musketeers, but there's a fourth one." But the title is still three because calling it the four musketeers just wouldn't have the the right ring to it. And the idea is that it's like the three musketeers plus one. And so you see that in a lot of stories where three seems to be the number and it has it gives things a certain ring it gives titles a certain ring to hear three. You know, yeah, you have four horsemen, I mean, which kind of blows my entire theory out of the, (laughs) out of the, (laughs) kind of blows my entire theory away, but not really. You don't typically hear fours quite as much. Threes tend to have a little more significance. It tends to, to be used more creatively. But not necessarily creatively, because you also see it in business, you know, administratively, where, you know, I was talking about elementary school political elections recently, and even that was a series of threes, where you have, you know, the president, the vice president, and the treasurer, which is exactly what you would see in a business. It's exactly what you would see in a corporation, where there's a president, a vice president, and a CFO, which is the same thing as a treasurer, obviously. The guy who handles the money. The guy who has his hands in the war chest. And, of course, there are other executives. There are other positions. There can be multiple vice presidents. But you just see that structure very commonly in different settings. You know, both for little kids having their political elections, as well as corporations and the way corporations are structured administratively. You know, vice president, president, CFO. And oftentimes things are given an uneven number because of the tiebreaker factor, where if something is ruled by committee, you know, each person has a vote, and you don't want that to be an even number of votes on each side. So when committees are set up, they'll often be uneven. And so the smallest possible number you could have on a committee or something that functions like a committee is three. Because that guarantees there will be a tiebreaker. You know, know, two people vote yes, one person votes no. Two people vote no, one person votes yes. There will always be somebody who can break that tie. And, you know, of course committees can be larger, but three is the smallest possible number you can have in a voting system and have somebody break the tie because if there's only one person well that's absolute authority and if you have two people they can easily disagree and it's a stalemate so three is the number you need in order to function as a committee and that number you also see in the mafia which is funny you know in the mafia the administration of a mafia the leadership of a mafia group has a boss an underboss and what's called the consigliere which translates of course to counselor, somebody who's kind of an advisor or a mediator. And again, you see 3 though. You know, there are, there are captains underneath them. There there's middle management like you would see in a corporation. But as far as the administration goes, you have a, a group of 3. And they don't necessarily function as a committee, so it's not that they need that to have some sort of tiebreaker because the boss in theory has you know the majority influence. So it's not necessarily a thing where, oh, you know, they're voting on things and they need three. It's just there's something natural about a sort of a pyramid structure where you have a group of three leaders, even though they're not all equal. You have a group of three leaders because three makes sense for some reason, not four. And so it's, you see it in a variety of organizations you see it play out in all kinds of structures. Like I said, even kids role-playing as politicians in elementary school, you still have a president, vice president, and CFO, or, uh, treasurer. And so I just thought I'd point that out, how it's something that you also see with that. And, and I mean, I've kind of seen it play out too, where if you're working on a project, it could be professional, it could be creative. You don't really want more than three people brainstorming. You don't want more than three... I mean, it goes back to the phrase, you know, too many cooks in the kitchen. And sometimes more than one, you know, having more than one person try to influence something, that can be a problem. And having two can be an even bigger problem. I mean, if, if it's only one person, you don't really want that. If you're working on a project, unless that person is has been established as the supervisor or the boss... Or let's say it's a band that person is the songwriter and it's just it's just accepted that that person has that role you know in that situation it's okay to have one person but then you throw a second person into it and it gets into that committee idea again where now you have two people who if they disagree it's a stalemate and so when you have two people I mean that that can be too many cooks in the kitchen itself But if you're allowing more than one person to give input, if you're allowing more than one person to give influence, you can't really settle for two. You kind of need three, because things need to function more like a committee. And so in situations, like I said, whether they're professional or creative or social, sometimes having three people is the right number. And if it's creative, that has to be natural. You can't just be like, oh, we've decided that three people all have equal voice. You know, you can't necessarily decide that, uh, but, uh, you know, it does often work that way. And when you start throwing in more voices, you know, when you start throwing in more than three voices, I feel like things get tricky because now you have all sorts of just competing interests. And then not just that, but when you have more than three people, you know, giving their voice on a project, you end up with people who are just saying something just to say something, like almost to get participation points. Like I've worked on projects at jobs where you have five or more people, five to seven people, who all would be called stakeholders in a project... And there's really only gonna be, let's say, three people maximum who need to give guidance, who need to, who need to actually influence the direction of a project. But you'll find that if more people than that are included, you end up with other people chiming in just to feel like they're part of the decision-making process which, if it's known that that's all they're doing, that's fine, but it can really muddy up discussions, it can really muddy up the direction of the project, because if everybody is in theory equal, you know, it's just, if everybody's in theory, if, if everybody's voice is in theory equal, when you end up with seven people, or even five people all chiming in, you have to treat each person's thoughts as if they're they're equal to like say the three core people i don't know just things end up getting muddy and so three is the minimum number of people you can have and still have things function democratically without stalemates but when you have more than three people you end up with a problem too because you have people who just think that they need to participate for the sake of participating because they've been given a position and the major, you know, in, in the majority of situations too, things do funnel downward to where even if there are more people who are part of the decision-making process, you know, it, it gets primal. Where the more people you have, the more likely that somebody is going to be deferring to somebody else, and so what's the point in adding more people anyway? You know, extra people will end up falling in line under somebody who is more charismatic, more influential. You know, something to that effect. And uh, so you're really just muddying things up by adding more than three people to a given situation. And I find that three is also a natural number, in the same way that it it, that it's that it naturally sort of occurs in storytelling, a trio. You know, the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future, the three musketeers, even if there is an extra one, you know, it does sort of fit into this storytelling narrative where having three just sort of works. Uh, I find that that also plays out just socially. It plays out creatively. Where when you have three people all giving input on something, or three people who are, you know, basically equals... I I don't know. It just seems to fit better. And of course that can hurt people's egos. Like if somebody doesn't feel like their voice is equal, you know, it sucks. I mean, there's no getting around that. But if you've ever worked on something where somebody's voice truly isn't equal, like everybody knows it. Everybody knows that that person's voice is not equal. Their ideas are not as good. And maybe it's just purely situational, where their ideas aren't as good when it comes to the particular thing that you're working on. They might have skills, they might have qualities that would make them, you know, a a very powerful voice in a completely different situation, but it can be difficult, you know, when that person really isn't suited for whatever it is you're working on. And part of life is just accepting that. You know, part of life is just accepting that there are situations where your voice doesn't carry as much weight. And it doesn't doesn't make you worthless. But there are certainly situations where your voice is less relevant or you are less suited to a certain situation. But it's always a struggle when you're not, you know, it's always a struggle when you realize that you're not Part of the decision-making process you know that's what our egos come into play and that can always be a struggle just because we know no matter what you know that you're not being included or you're not influencing the situation that you're just kind of along for the ride you're not one of the three you're not one of the three I'm going to pause this for a second. I have more to say about a different subject, but I have to pause it. All right, we're recording again. That intermission was probably a split second to you, but it was a thousand years for me. And that gets me to my next point, which has nothing to do with threes, nothing to do with any of that. Uh, I'm going to be talking a little bit about hyperbole, which is, you know, of course, exaggeration, usually exaggerating to make a point. Sometimes it's used creatively, you know, sometimes hyperbole is an important part of storytelling, it's an important part of the creative process, it makes things more interesting, more engaging, or it just sounds good. Sometimes hyperbole just sounds better when you're making a statement, and I try to avoid doing it too much, especially when it's important, when something requires, you know, a degree of accuracy, I try not to do it. And it reminds me of a conversation I had with my friend Nick. Sometime in the last decade, I was talking to him about something, and I think I said I said something to the effect of, oh, I've done that a thousand times, and blah, blah, blah. And he was like, how about you just use the actual number? You know, I, I greatly appreciated him saying that. I don't remember what the context was, but I said something to the effect of, you know, you know, I've done it a thousand times, and... He was like, "Why don't you just use the exact number of times you've done it?" And it was a, you know, a no, it was a low-stakes conversation. It wasn't like there was any reason for me to be accurate, but also there was no reason for me to be inaccurate either. It just sounded good to say a thousand times. Pretty much the same as as me just saying a second ago. What seemed like a split second to you was a thousand years to me. You know, that sounds better than saying. What was a split second to you was five years to me. It was literally 10 minutes. I had this thing on pause for literally 10 minutes. But doesn't it sound a lot better to say a thousand years? <laughs> Especially when it doesn't matter. But no, I appreciated my friend's point. I appreciated the point he was making, which is, you know, be conscious of the fact that you're exaggerating. And it would be different if I was trying to get points or I was trying to get some result. But it was just, we were just bullshitting about stuff anyway. But I, I did, obviously I remembered him saying that. I remembered him making that point that, hey, try to be accurate. Uh, I didn't listen to it though. I didn't, I didn't follow that advice. I remembered it, but I, I didn't follow it because I still like to use you know some amount of exaggeration, some amount of hyperbole. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that on its own as long as you know you're doing it. I mean, so many things in life, in my opinion, come down to knowing whether you are doing something or not. Because if, you know, if you know when you're doing it, you might better understand why you're doing it. You notice it. It comes down to noticing yourself doing something. And it doesn't mean you need to stop yourself every time you're using hyperbole and say, oh, I'm doing that, and now I have to think about why I'm doing it. But you just you come to realize that you you do something for a certain reason. And if you think that way in general, you'll do it for the right reason, maybe. And hyperbole, of course, is inescapable, which itself sounds like hyperbole. <laughs> it's inescapable. But I, I do think it is. I think we inevitably default to it. I mean, most stories have a degree of hyperbole and it's not even that we're trying to exaggerate something to make it more interesting i think it's just what we do and i try not to exaggerate stories like if i'm telling an, if i'm describing an event that took place i will try to be as accurate as possible to an annoying degree even cuz the same friend that i was talking about my buddy nick i remember him telling me when we were in high school he was like you know sometimes i'll be telling a story where we were both in the same situation and I'll describe, like, somebody wearing a blue shirt, and you'll correct me and be like, it was actually green. And he's like, you don't need to do that. And I was like, you know what, you're right. You're right. That's totally unimportant to the story. It's very, it's, it's completely unimportant what color shirt some random person was wearing. And it's not even important to the story. You know, it'd be different if it was a little red riding hood, and you're, you're describing her hood as, as blue. You know, because there's, you know, important part of the story where it's like, you know, the color of the article of clothing is going to be important. But he made a good point, you know. Obviously, this guy's my friend for a reason, my lifelong friend, because he made a good point. Like, there are some times where I'm just telling a story, you don't need to correct me. And uh, it's true. And it's a result of having a very visual memory, like my memory is very visual. So if somebody is telling a story and I was there and they describe one small detail differently than I remember it, it feels like something's wrong. It feels like some aspect of the story is off, even though it's unimportant. But yet when it comes to verbally telling a story, I don't care if hyperbole is used. So that's kind of an interesting dynamic there, where it's like, oh, I don't, I don't mind if somebody exaggerates a number, like if somebody says if there were 500 soldiers, let's say somebody's telling a story, and in reality there were 500 soldiers storming the castle, but for the sake of the story, if they say there was a thousand, there was uh, five thousand. You know for the sake of a story that doesn't bother me but yet i'll i'll like pause because somebody said that a green shirt was a blue shirt so that's just something in my own brain that you know i don't even know how to explain that but that's just how my own brain works where one thing one version of hype you know one version of inaccuracy doesn't bother me while some detail needs to be totally accurate and I, you know, I just recognize that in myself. Again, it comes down to just realizing you do it, and there's nothing wrong with it as long as you understand why you do it. But to get back to you know, just the idea of hyperbole and exaggeration. Right now, we see it used to make these socio-political points, and people you do it, and they become invested in it, where it's it's not just that people are using hyperbole to make some sort of point about a politician or society or something else that goes on in the world. It gets back to that idea of when you verbalize something, you invest in it, especially if it's something that you emotionally invest in. And uh, the best example of this might be when someone calls someone a Nazi in 2020, because it's of course hyperbole. I mean... To begin with of course somebody isn't even if somebody is a full-fledged neo-nazi they're not actually a nazi they're not actually part of the national socialist party of germany and they're not actually participating in a holocaust they're role-playing and they might be hateful they might be dangerous they might be a criminal But even a neo-Nazi isn't really a Nazi, and I know that's really splitting hairs, but I'm just using that as an extreme example. But you hear it used for anybody now who disagrees with the values of the far left. It's thrown around very casually, and if people knew that they were using it as hyperbole, that would be fine. But I've seen over the last few years in particular where saying somebody is like a Nazi, has become they are a Nazi, or even they're worse than a Nazi, which is pretty amazing that people have gone there with it. And the most obvious example is Donald Trumpsfeld, where now people have no reservation saying that he is literally that. They have no reservation, there's no pause, there's no reflection when someone says that he is actually a Nazi. And that's because they've invested in that. It started out as hyperbole. It began as hyperbole, describing him as a Nazi. And then they they invested in that hyperbole, and they can't back down. Because when you make a statement like that, with a great deal of emotional investment, and not just an emotional investment, but an agenda. When you have some sort of purpose behind that statement, some sort of goal you're trying to reach... And your emotions are tied up with that goal. When you make a hyperbolic statement like that, you can't back down from it. I mean, you can, but that's a skill many people haven't developed. Because, as I talked about a while back, you know, when you say something out loud, that's a certain investment. And when you say something out loud to another person, especially if it's on a public platform, like, if you got on social media three years ago, and you said, Donald Trump's Trumpsfeld's a Nazi. He's a literal Nazi. You can't back down from that. Now you have to act in accordance with that idea. You have to respond to everything he does like he is an actual Nazi. And so you, you invested in the hyperbole. And even if you originally were using it just for emphasis, which I think is the best use of hyperbole, hyperbole should be used to emphasize certain points. And when you, but when it goes beyond that, when you actually start believing in the hyperbole, when you've deeply invested in it, that's where things go haywire. And someone who's done that, somebody who has labeled Trumpsfeld a Nazi, they might be totally fine with the fact that it is hyperbole and they've doubled down on it and they might know i mean they have to know deep down that that's not an accurate description of him no matter what you want to call him they have to know that that's not accurate but they might not care because their goal is to have him gone their goal is to be rid of him so anything i mean the, the left has taken on this by any means necessary sort of approach to everything which is alarming. It's very alarming, to be honest. To be honest. Um, And it's, it's so that anything that could take this guy out is fair game. And so, whether they're totally convinced deep down of the hyperbole or not, it doesn't seem to make that much of a difference because their goal is to use any means possible to be rid of him. And where that gets... You know, bad for those people, where it gets, I mean, it's bad for everybody, but where it gets bad for those people is it actually turns people in the other direction. It actually does more for Nazism than any Holocaust denier could ever do. It makes an argument for extreme beliefs more than some weird, obscure, fringe person could ever hope to do through their limited audience. Because when you hear people say that Donald Trumpsfeld is literally a Nazi, if you're at all aware, if you're at all rational right now, you say, he's not a Nazi. You may or may not like him, but you at least recognize that the man is not a Nazi. And that makes you start to question other labels that people put on people. It might even make you question the historic portrayal of Nazis themselves. Because you might say, if people think that Donald Trumpsfeld is a Nazi, whether he's good or bad, the fact that people are labeling him a Nazi, which has become the modern term for Antichrist... You know, as our worlds have become more secular, we still have a need for something to be Satan, for something to be evil, for something to be the Antichrist. And increasingly, Nazism has become that. And people use it just as generally as they do evil, just as generally as they do ideas like Satan. Hitler is the Antichrist to the secular world. And people throw his name out just as broadly. But it might make someone say, hey, you know what? If, if Donald Trumpsfeld is getting called Hitler or a Nazi and he hasn't done anything that's nearly as bad as what the Nazis did, that might make them be skeptical of what actually happened during World War II. Am I saying you should go there with it? No. But that's going to make somebody have at least a little bit of reservation when they hear somebody describe something that's actually bad. And what we're talking about is, of course, the the boy who cried wolf. You know, everybody knows the story, but it's worth just repeating here so you understand what I mean. But, you know, the, the boy who cried wolf repeatedly used hyperbole. He kept saying there was a wolf when there wasn't you know, he, if not exaggerated, outright lied, or was delusional, whatever it was, I don't even remember. Was the, the boy who cried wolf delusional, or was he deliberately calling things wolves? I don't remember. But, uh, either way, he was basically using hyperbole, and people stopped believing him. I mean, the boy who, craw- who cried Nazi is, it could, you know, it could be the modern version, where he, he said that so often about so many different things that if somebody who actually fit that description, if somebody who actually was a Nazi showed up, somebody might just be like, you know what, you say that about everything. And the furthest extreme of that might be somebody who says, and you know what, I, based on the way you're talking, maybe you know the Nazis weren't even that bad. Or you know, based on the way that you describe everything as a wolf, maybe the wolf itself isn't even that bad. You know, you might make people go there in doing that. And in doing that, you do more... You make a stronger argument for that thing than the weird fringe hate groups ever could. Because they do have the ability to influence people, but a much smaller ability to do that. They do not have that much influence. And if you think otherwise, I don't actually study this stuff, I would I would say... Um, but it's just interesting though how use of that hyperbole in calling everybody and let's get away from Trump'sfeld who is a, a polarizing figure and let's look at normal people relatively normal people who also who also get called names like that you know there's relatively mild public personalities professors celebrities who get called names like nazi And when you see that, you go, okay, something is really off. The hyperbole has been stretched so thin, and yet people are still doubling down on it. People are still using it. it's, It's as if they depend on it. Like, if you were to take that hyperbole away from them, what would they do? They might actually have to come up with a rational argument for why they're so opposed to somebody or a certain way of thinking. And so they, people who do that, when you exist in a, you know, what I'll say is, if you're not aware of the hyperbole that you're using, if you've doubled down on the hyperbole and it's become your reality, I mean, it's delusional for one, but you're living in a very blurry world, you're living in a very blurry world, things are not in focus, things just kind of bleed into each other. They blur into each other. And it's no wonder life is so scary for the people who live that way. It's no wonder they are pointing their fingers at everything. I mean, because they've basically turned the lights out in a room. And they were already afraid of something in that room, but now everything has become that thing they're afraid of. And they're accusing... Random objects of being that thing. I mean people are almost at the point, and here I am using hyperbole myself, but it feels that people, like people are almost at the point of pointing at inanimate objects and saying that's a Nazi or pointing at <laughs> wild animals. It's like, oh look at the wolf. The wolf's a predator. The wolf's a, a predator, it hunts things down and kills them. It's a Nazi. And maybe that's just the logical conclusion of all this, is the boy who cried Nazi wolf. You know, that very, that very well could be just the, the perfect story for all this, just combine it all into one. But yeah, you can see where people have doubled down on that, and they've, I, I feel they've done far more to normalize these things than fringe people could ever do. And so they've actually helped these things in many ways they have actually made a much stronger argument for these things, and I think made people more uh, skeptical or, you know, question things that, uh, that existed in the past and were readily accepted. Because I guarantee you there are people out there who always just readily accepted the fact that the Nazis were bad guys who carried out a mass genocide. I mean, there are people who just readily accepted that because it's taught in our schools. And it's just, you know, our country fought them. And people accept that, you know, and there's no reason not to. But now we have people using those same words to describe people that anybody with their naked eye can see don't fit that part. And in doing that, you create skepticism where there was no need for it to exist. And when you label modern politicians who have not participated in any kind of genocidal behavior, whether you think that they want to, whether you think they think about it, whether you think that's Trumpsfeld's dream is another question, but the idea that he has, the idea that that's what he's doing, with your naked eye you can see that's not true. And in describing him as, as a Nazi or Hitler, you're actually making an argument for Nazis and Hitler by saying, Hey, if this thing now can get called that for doing very little, as far as war crimes are concerned, you know what else in history has been mislabeled or mistreated? What else has been distorted through the use of hyperbole? me, this brave, this golden land to me, and when the morning sun reveals her hills and plains, I see.